Hello, and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, February 28th. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Asa Winstanley, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. It's day 145 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We have a packed show for you today. And before we go to the news and uh, and our special guest, John Mearsheimer, we have one of our contributors, Abu Bakr Abed, on the line from Gaza. We wanted to bring him on immediately. Uh, Abu Bakr, hi. It's so good to see you. Hi. Thank you hi, so Abu much. Bakr. It, uh, hi, Dr. Ali. It, it's, uh, it's, it's overwhelming to... Uh, to see your face and and to have an internet connection where we can actually bring you on, um, I don't. I'm a little speechless, actually. Can you tell us, um, tell us uh, what what it's like right now, uh, 145 days into this genocide? Uh, well, I can tell you that the people at the moment are just hoping that a ceasefire can happen very soon. That's what they are hoping at the moment. They're very, they're very hopeful or and optimistic of the upcoming news of uh, a ceasefire happening next Monday. They're waiting because there is a news, there is potentially news that just that is saying people who are displaced from the north of Gaza will go back to the north and gradually. So yes, they're just hoping that this will happen because yeah, it's been all suffering and it's been all horror. Every day is a is a different challenge, and even every day we work, we wake up. Is, is, is just like a gift from heaven because we don't know if we are going to get up. So every day we try to sleep in the night. We just say that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be alive next day. So all I'm just saying is like, you know, just do some praying, do some prayers and just like, you know, to the other family, I'm leaving you. I may, I may be leaving you next day. So that's, that's, that's what we are doing because we are not battling anything. We're just battling war. We're just battling starvation. We're just battling pollution and diseases at the same time. So where, wherever it is in Gaza, it's, 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 it's tribulations. It's more pain, and being this, like, you know, arises more and more and more. Panic arises among people, because I don't think there is a, any human being in this world can bear one hour of what we have been enduring across the last 145 days. And, and yet, Abu Bakr, you have been enduring it for 145 days. I just want to show our... Uh, our viewers, Tamara, if we could put up uh, Abu Bakr's author page um, so that people can see that Abu Bakr, even during this horrifying uh, genocide, has continued to write, continued to report, and his most recent piece for the Electronic Intifada is about uh, the horrifying situation that um, for newborn babies, of which there are hundreds every day in Gaza. Abu Bakr, do you want to say something about this piece and how you were able to write it under these conditions? Uh, that, that's really amazing to, to, to ask it because what, what I've seen and what I wanted to write this piece even is the fact that you can't really see a child, a newborn baby, you know, like under such circumstances, especially for those newborn babies, because I've met a mom who just like, you know, gave birth to her child just two months before the war. 
how is it like for you as a father and mother that your child, your newborn baby, is going to live his first few, his his first months during the war? Even he doesn't, he hasn't guaranteed his life. He hasn't guaranteed that he will live another, like you know, a peaceful life. Yet he's still under the war. He just lived two months now. These babies, when I looked at them, did not did not give him milk. They can't find milk. They can't find anything. Even in Jabbers, they're so expensive, and 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 it's just unimaginable for a mother. To, like when you when I go and ask a mother about her newborn baby, she says or she replies, "I can't afford anything for for for, for them. I can't afford." But is it childhood or her childhood or his, you know, the, the babyhood he's living at the moment is just like something I don't want him. I prefer, some mothers are saying, I prefer he is, I wish he were not born, not to live this war. Because that's, this war that's, just, that's just a, a terrible thing. A, a, a mother... Uh, a parent would want their child more than anything else in the world, but I know. But to but expose that, but, but the feeling of, but talk about that situation of day-to-day -day life, Abu Bakr, for you, for your family, for the people around you. We're seeing reports now from the World Food Program saying that Gaza is the worst place in the world for child malnutrition. We're seeing reports from people about how difficult it is to get food what's it like for you and your family and the people around you right it's, now it's really it's really the same thing because unfortunately it's been 145 days i eat the same thing people probably you know that i'm suffering from a weak immune system so doctors have previously advised me to eat or to have a plate of meat or fish at least twice a week to just to prevent yourself from diseases etc how many times have I eaten fish or meat? Probably one time across the last 145 days. Given this fact, I have contracted nine diseases. I have been ill for so many days without finding medications. It's the same thing. What do you eat very in the morning? What do you eat in the evening? We have, we can barely have one meal and it's the same meal every time you could have a loaf of bread and you're lucky to have it and just one tomato that's that's everything you can have and probably you can get some whitey cheese probably if you are if you are going to have some guns that are the the local uh, you know our food it's going to be like you know you're getting like a billion dollars that's how it is but you can't get it because what we are eating is like, you know, some plants, some home, you know, some grown plants like basil, like mochia, and even they are told. That's why it's terrifying. You can't eat malnutrition. It's, 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 an, it's extremist. It's maximum level. You can't really help yourself prevent prevent yourself from diseases. I mean, there's such circumstances because all this uh, food, uh, like most of what we eat is canned, so just you know, canned food is, is really bad in terms of quality because we are being given, literally, we're being given animal food. Yes, we're being given animal food because they don't want food. Abu, Abu Bakr, the, the line is not the line is is not very clear, but I want to ask you: Are you are supplies reaching people in Gaza? Is uh, is food, other kinds of supplies, are they getting to you? 
Well, I have to, like, I think the, the mic is muted. Yeah, the uh, Abu Bakr, it looks like you're you're muted. Um, oh. I don't. Yeah, oh, there go we ahead go. Now. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, this is the important point, Riley, because you know, food aid doesn't people. It's just a joke. Anthony Blinken goes up and say on and says on Twitter, the food aid we have given a lot of aid trucks and allowed them to. To, to enter this term because that's not true at all. People being given the food aid in Gaza is just probably around 15% of the population. Talking about where I am at the moment, when you look at people, when you see people, tell them, ask them the question, have you ever received aid during the whole war? Their answer is definite and it is no. Because what we are, people are not being given food aid. No, unfortunately. And that, personally speaking, I haven't received any single aid at all since this war broke out. And I'm actually not in need of them. Alhamdulillah, everything is going good. Alhamdulillah, my family and I are really, really, are really living good circumstances until now. So, no, I'm just thankful for, for Allah, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But, yes, as I've told you, people are not receiving aid. Unfortunately, people are not receiving anything. And make sure, that, like, there's one last point. Make sure that one time I was with, I was with a family who received, like, a pack of uh, food aid. If you, like... A place, I need everyone to listen to these words because I'm responsible for what I'm saying. If I bring an animal just to eat what was in this food aid pack, it, it wouldn't, this animal wouldn't eat them because it's, it is the lowest quality ever you can have. What is it like that you are just giving me water that is contaminated, contaminated that is polluted. What what is it like? Just like you're trying to give me some biscuits and uh, getting uh, get, uh, getting stuff from its expiry date. What is it like? Just like that, you you you're giving me the worst thing. You're giving me lentil soup canned. That yeah. is but, really, I'm so sorry, it, but that is really disgusting. So so what 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 I'm hearing uh, with the the difficult connection, but what I'm hearing is that. Aid is not getting to anyone except a tiny number of people, and people are having to Absolutely. rely often on um, Expired. locally grown yeah. uh, uh, weeds and plants. We've seen uh, people yes. showing, uh, for example, chobeze, which I don't know the name in English, but it's a common weed in Palestine and Jordan that people uh, yes. sometimes sometimes eat. Abu Bakr, I want to ask you, Two, two questions. Are people in Gaza getting news from the outside world? Are they seeing the protests, the mobilizations, the diplomatic uh, efforts, whatever it may be? And also, the second question is, what do you want to tell people around the world from Gaza? So for the first question, yes, people are trying their very best just to follow the news, like despite the fact that telecommunications are too bad and poor and the internet connection doesn't reach the areas very regularly, but they are trying. They're trying very best. They're trying to go 
to go and seek some, you know, seek some like TV screens supplied with batteries just to follow the news on Al Jazeera, probably Al Jazeera Arabic or, or other news outlets. But unfortunately, they cannot do that most of the time. One, one, one friend of mine who's currently in Rafa, he tells me that I don't, I don't follow the news. I can't follow the news. I live near the border in Rafa. So it just like to go to a place where internet connection is good. It's going to be a risk on my life. So I don't go. I just don't know anything. So just like, yeah, the same thing. It's a tiny percentage of the population who knows about the news. Who really follows the news, but you know it's like Palestine is a is a is a lovable and, and and adorable community where everyone like likes to share optimistic news for others. So that's why they are trying to tell them, okay, there is a, going to be a potential ceasefire, and all are singing as a result. So oh, okay, that's amazing. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna go back home. We're gonna go back home. So that's the the, the first time the initial talks were held. They were celebrating in marches in the stage during the late hours. So it was incredibly interesting for them that they that there were some initial talks of, uh, of a potential ceasefire happening very soon. So, yeah, they're trying to watch the news, but it's very difficult, like for me and for us. Now, for the second question, what I really have from Gaza is absolutely nothing except, like, saying that what we want is, like, more people should feel what we are going through because people cannot really recognized or received the whole image of people standing here in Gaza. The situation covered by the news is not is is nothing compared to with what we are actually living because what we are really living at the moment is nothing except hell. It's literally hell because most people are Christian, are preferring to be to be killed rather than living amid such circumstances. Like one one fisherman told me that I have no other choice. All of the fishing tools I had in Gaza, in the Gaza seaport, which was destructed, which was destroyed by the Israeli forces, ha like has been destroyed. All of them have been stolen. Now, what I have in Little Bella is literally nothing. I have only one, one choice, which is to go and sell my children. Yes, this is really bad to remember. This is his solution at the moment. is just to go and sell my children to, to just stay alive. So when you look at people saying these messages and, and, and trying to tell people, try to tell others in the outside world what is really going on, your heart breaks, not one time, but a million times a day. So that's what we are trying to know, that what is it like? I, I really fancy a Snickers piece. I really fancy a biscuit piece. Can you give me one? This is the story. I, I'm really honest in terms of that. Can you give me one? Just like that. I really fancy like one, one cup of clean water. I promise. I'm, I'm, I'm swearing to God that I haven't tasted it at all. And yes, every every other day I'm I'm, I'm suffering. This stomach killer is killing me. But yeah, it's okay. We are we are patient. We're trying to endure what is unbearable. And yes, this is the story. Just please, in in, in a short line. Just to try and get like get to know and get to 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 feel what we are going through because what we feel is traumatizing. Abu Bakr, um, finally, uh, when when you're able to uh, go back and return and rebuild 
Gaza and rebuild Palestine, um, what is the first thing that you're going to do? I really, I really want to complete my education because I'm still a student and I haven't, I have been deprived of my uh, educational rights. Unfortunately, my life as a as a university student, any university student in the world should have a a great, interesting, and joyful life in his university or in their university. Unfortunate to say that during my three years I spent, I haven't completed the fourth year. During the three years now, I have lived two wars in 2021 and in 2023, and it's still lasting. So I just want to make my own university and make people, all of the people, all of the Gazan people, just to try and learn and, and, and continue their journey because I'm sure and I'm confident and normal people, they are very educated, they're very ambitious, they have goals, they have loads of ambitions that they want to get and i have many ambitions that have unfortunately been stopped since october 7 because of the war yes that's 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 the that's something i want to build on i want to uh, i want to make sure that people can know about me is that a lot of my ambitions have been stopped since october 7 a lot of my dream a lot of my dreams and unfortunately yeah, i'm seeing my dreams being crushed yeah i'm seeing my dreams being crushed and and I was just like, and on, on a personal note, I was just in an Oxford University uh, course entitled Critical Reading with Dr. Jen Don. And I was like uh, half the way, like, you know, reaching the, the middle of it. Unfortunately, I wasn't able, the, the war broke out and, and, and the doctor said to me, Abubakar, you're one of the most brilliant students ever. I'm not trying to praise myself, no. But she told me, I wish this war could happen, uh, could, it could end. And I just want you to complete with us. I just want to know you, to know from you more about Arabic literature, more about Arabic language. It's so interesting to hear from you all the time. So that's why even when I saw that the messages of my colleagues, of my virtual colleagues on, on this university course, I was literally happy. I was literally amazed and that everyone showed me love and support as you really do at the moment. And I can't really imagine myself like losing all of that every time. I remember how well I was doing, how hard working I was in this, on this course in my university. It pains me a lot. My heart aches just to remember that these now, all of this, the course, my my, my 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 books, my university, my pincers. I have a lot of pincers and a lot of bins, you know, in, in in my room, which now are just like you know, thrown away, unfortunately. So that's what I want the most. Abu Bakr, we do love you, and we thank you for um, joining us and giving us this time. And we hope that you and all the people in Gaza will be able to resume alive soon and we just pray that you continue to have the patience you've had for 145 days on the live chat i don't know if you're able to see it we have so many messages of support and people sending their love and promising that they will not stop raising their voices to demand a ceasefire and to demand justice and all over the united states and the world these protests are ongoing so Please give that message to people in Gaza who don't hear the news that we are not silent. We will never be silent and we will continue to stand by you even if you can't see us and hear us because of the lack of communications. 
we really uh, finally like we really feel you we really feel your essence and your quintessential essence we thank you and from here you can't really imagine how happy i am to be with you it's just my pleasure it's a day i will never forget because i thought all of that was just beyond imagination no. we'll, we'll do it and we'll do it again we will this smile can't can't be away from me really so thank you so much <laughs> And uh, yes, keep that because we love you the same way you love us. We love you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I'm incredibly thankful to every one of you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. We'll, back we'll be in touch. Inshallah. Be safe. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. <sighs> um, that was. I'm so glad we were able to do that, Ali. Yeah, it it just worked out because you know we, we're unable to schedule people from Gaza yeah. because you can't make any plan because nobody knows from one hour to the next if they're going to be alive, let alone yeah. the, if they're going to have internet and be somewhere safe enough to do it. So we were so pleased to be able to get Abu Bakr, and we shifted uh, things around a bit. Yeah. Uh, we're going to come to the news after we we speak to our our um, our guest who's waiting in the wings. Yeah, uh, go ahead and introduce John Mearsheimer. Yeah, um, so we are really uh, delighted that uh, we're going to be joined today by Professor John Mearsheimer. He is the Wendell Harris Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago where he's taught for more than 40 years. And that's where I first encountered him as a student nearly 30 years ago. Um, Professor Mearsheimer is perhaps best known as a proponent of the realist school of international relations. And put simply, this is the view that competition between great powers is the main characteristic of international politics. Big states seek to become hegemons or dominant powers and to prevent other states from becoming hegemons, while smaller states seek to survive and maximize their own security by navigating between these great powers. Realism is sometimes mischaracterized as putting forward the proposition that might is right. I think this is a misunderstanding. We'll get Professor Mearsheimer's views in a minute. But I interpret the realist position as saying that might is not necessarily right, but it is a fact. And analyzing where and how power is wielded in the world and by whom can be a very useful lens for understanding geopolitics. And Professor Mearsheimer provides an impressive example of that. I just want to recall that back in 2015, he gave a lecture at the University of Chicago, Chicago titled Why Ukraine is the West's Fault. And in it, he explained that the U.S. policy of fomenting regime change in Kiev in 2014 and trying to drag Ukraine into NATO would lead to the country, in his words, getting wrecked. Uh, Professor Mearsheimer was already one of the world's most influential political scientists at the time. But in February 2022, after Russia launched its so-called special military operation in Ukraine, he shot to international superstardom. His 2015 lecture went viral on social media and on, on YouTube because seven years earlier he had predicted with startling accuracy, accuracy how the tragedy in Ukraine would unfold. The last time I checked, that video had more than 20, 29 million views. We'll see if we can beat that today. Um, 
And before that, uh, as I'm certain many viewers know, Professor Mearsheimer made himself very popular in some circles and extremely unpopular in other circles by co-authoring the 2007 book, The Israel Lobby in U.S. Foreign Policy with his colleague, Stephen Walt. John, we're delighted you could join us today. And first thing, can I ask you if you brought your crystal ball with you? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I can always make an attempt to tell you what I think is going to happen, but uh, how accurate I am is another matter. Well, let me ask you, was my description of realism accurate enough? Yeah, I thought it was an excellent description of realism. I actually liked how you talked about the minor powers navigating through the waters, you know, where the superpowers or the great powers dominate. It was very well put. Thank you. I'll let you use that free of charge. You're, you're, you're welcome to use that, but, but thank you very much. So let's start. Uh, uh, let's just begin with the recent decision of the International Court of Justice in the case of South Africa versus, versus Israel. On January 26th, the ICJ found that Israel had a plausible case to answer for genocide in Gaza and ordered it to immediately halt all potentially genocidal acts. The day after the ruling, you wrote, quote, it seems clear that yesterday was a black day for Israel as the ICJ order will leave a deep and lasting stain on its reputation. C can you expand on that? Why do you think uh, this will leave a deep and lasting stain? Well, the fact is that the ICJ, uh, looking at the evidence, said there was sufficient evidence available uh, to think that Israel was waging a genocidal campaign against uh, the Palestinians in Gaza. I find this to be a remarkable conclusion when you take into account the fact that this is the Jewish state and Jews, of course, were victims of one of the greatest uh, genocides in recorded history. And that, of course, has to do with what the Nazis did between 1941 and 1945. And to think that the Jewish state uh, is stands uh, accused of genocide is really quite remarkable. Uh, and uh, in, in this day and age, uh, when you have an internet and you have all this alternative media, uh, it's almost impossible for the word uh, regarding genocide uh, and Israel's behavior or the words involving genocide and Israel's behavior not to sort of uh, spread all over the world. And all sorts of people now understand uh, what the IJ, ICJ said uh, in late January. And there's no way this cannot do enormous damage uh, to Israel's reputation. And by the way, to America's reputation as well, because the United States is complicitous in this genocide. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's co-authoring this genocide. Um what do you think Israel is trying to achieve in Gaza? You know, they always say that their goal is to destroy Hamas, to eliminate Hamas, to make sure Hamas doesn't have any power or legitimacy or to turn the people against Hamas. Um, is that really the goal or is it ethnic cleansing and genocide? Well, I think the principal goal was ethnic cleansing. 
uh, I think that uh, Israel's in a situation now where given the fact that it rejects a two-state solution and it rejects uh, a democratic greater Israel, uh, it's faced with two choices. One is apartheid, which of course is what you now have, or two is ethnic cleansing. And what the Israelis set out to do, in my opinion, from the get-go in Gaza, was ethnically cleanse uh, Gaza. Now, you want to think about the whole argument that many defenders of Israel make, which is that they weren't interested in ethnic cleansing. Uh, and what they were really interested in doing was eliminating Hamas. There's no way you can eliminate Hamas unless you either kill all the Palestinians in Gaza or you ethnically cleanse Gaza. As long as the Palestinians remain in Gaza, you're going to have Hamas or you're going to have a Hamas equivalent. Israel is never going to win a total victory uh, against Hamas and do away with uh, terrorist activities. It's just not going to happen. The Palestinians are going to resist. So again, you have two choices, ethnically cleanse or kill all the Palestinians. And what the Israelis were doing uh, was waging a punishment campaign against the civilian population. The Israelis put their crosshairs on the civilian population. They didn't just simply go after Hamas. They went after the civilian population. And in my opinion, they wanted to drive them out of the Gaza Strip. They wanted another Nakba. It was very clear to me. And of course, they have been completely unsuccessful up to this point uh, in terms of achieving that goal, thankfully, I would add. But in the end, they have killed lots of Palestinians. They have killed so many Palestinians and they have done so many horrible things to the Palestinian people that it is easy to reach the conclusion, as the ICJ did, that there is substantial evidence uh, or plausible evidence that Israel is in the process of committing genocide. I mean, that's how horrible things are. So, but so, so if, if, as you say, uh, if, as we all clearly agree, the U.S. is the co-author of this, if, as you say, Israel is killing thousands of people and the, the description of genocide is very plausible, um, why is the United States government and the Biden administration and assi assisting and allowing Israel to commit genocide? Is it also the goal of the United States to ethnically cleanse Gaza? They say it's not, but they're helping Israel, at least in its attempt to do it. And do U.S. leaders not clearly see how damaging Israel's crimes are, not just to Palestinians, of course, but also to the influence and stature at the, of the United States? Why is the United States going along with this brutal, horrifying insanity? Well, I think that uh, the original reason that Biden committed the United States wholeheartedly to supporting Israel, no matter what it did uh, in Gaza, was because uh, he has a passionate attachment to Israel. Uh, a lot of presidents, a lot of policymakers, a lot of policy, 
politicians say that they're deeply committed to Israel and to Israel's security, but they just say that for political purposes. I think in the case of Biden, it is true. He is, in effect, joined at the hip with Israel. And he identified with Israel after October 7th, and he committed the United States to supporting Israel from the get-go. So that's point one. Second point, and in many ways the more important point, is that the Israel lobby is a remarkably powerful institution here in the United States. It is remarkably powerful. And it is almost impossible for anybody in the White House to challenge Israeli policy, no matter what it is, when it comes to the Palestinians. Uh, if we're talking about an arms deal with Saudi Arabia, uh, it is possible for a president to challenge the lobby, as Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s. But when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's almost impossible. So what's happened here, and it's quite clear, is that as this military operation by the IDF has played itself out, the Biden administration has become incredibly uncomfortable with what's going on. It's clear that Biden wants to shut this one down, even though he has a passionate attachment, which raises the question, why can't he shut it down? And the answer is the lobby. Biden I want to, I, uh, I mean, obviously I agree that the lobby is very powerful. We see the lobby at work in many places, particularly in universities in terms of bullying and pressuring and uh, harassing academics and uh, and the way they respond to any critical media report and the way politicians are, are, are punished. Certainly the Israel lobby is extremely present and powerful. But I, I want to push back a little bit on this because it's a criticism we see. I mean, you mentioned Ronald Reagan, there is this account that's been circulating in the past couple of months, well well, well sourced. It comes from, uh, I, I don't remember now the, uh, the, uh, the book, but it was from someone who was present uh, in the Reagan uh, era of, in 1982, President uh, Reagan w w was so horrified by Israel's bombardment of West Beirut, this was during the uh, Israeli invasion in 1982, that he picked up the phone uh, and spoke to Menachem Begin, who was the, president, the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, and said, this needs to stop, and I mean it. And he said it was a holocaust, what Israel was doing in West Beirut at that time, and reportedly Menachem Begin gave him all sorts of, uh, said, you know, Mr. President, I know what a Holocaust looks like. I don't need a lecture on that. But President Reagan was firm, and uh, he hung up the phone, and Menachem Begin called back after 20 minutes and said, I have ordered Ariel Sharon, who was the defense minister, to stop the bombing. So that's one phone call Biden could make. The other phone call he could make is to the Pentagon and maybe... Lloyd Austin would pick up or not. I don't know where Lloyd Austin is these days, and maybe the president doesn't know either. But uh, he could say to Lloyd Austin, stop or delay the 24-hour uh, airlift of weapons and bombs that are, are, are being used. And 
I get that the lobby is politically powerful, but here we just saw last night in Michigan, in the Michigan primary, uh, a significant number of people refusing to vote for um, for Biden in the Democratic primary as a protest of his support for this genocide. So you could argue that, one, the president has the power to put a stop to this, and two, the political liability is now shifting to the other side, where supporting Israel is going to cost him his job. So in that context, can't we just... Can we can we put it all down to the lobby? Is what I'm saying. Well, you can't put it all down to the lobby. My argument is that about 95 percent of it uh, is due to the lobby. Uh, as I said before, you don't want to underestimate the extent to which Biden has a passionate attachment to Israel. But you raised a lot of different points, and they're all big points uh, that need a lot of unpacking. First of all, with regard to what happened in Michigan. There's no question that Israel's image has suffered uh, in the body politic. And that when you look at especially young people, especially young Democrats, uh, you have a situation where any president should be able uh, to uh, put significant pressure on Israel, given uh, that uh, situation with younger people and what happened in Michigan. But the problem is there's a difference between the public and the elites. And where the lobby concentrates its efforts is on the elites, on politicians. It has tremendous power on Capitol Hill, and it has tremendous power vis-a-vis the White House. And the White House understands, President Biden understands, that if he crosses Israel, which means crossing the lobby, that they will go to great lengths to make sure that he gets defeated in November. And of course, given that he's up for re-election, that's the last thing in the world that he wants. So Biden is caught between a rock and a hard place. Of course, he's worried sick about the fact that all these people in Michigan are effectively voting against him. But he's also worried sick that if he gets tough on the Israelis, he'll lose the election in the fall because they'll be perfectly willing to help elect Donald Trump, who won't get tough on Israel. So Biden is not doing anything. Now, just to go to the phone calls for a second, there's no question that Biden has also called Netanyahu. And he's hollered at Netanyahu. There's this story of the phone call, a long phone call in December, where Biden actually got so angry with him that he just hung up the phone on him. Uh, But it's not a matter of calling on the telephone, right? It's a matter of changing policy. As you surely know, Ali, we have the coercive leverage to bring Israel to its knees. I mean, we could easily cause the Israelis to stop this genocide. There's no question about it. It's a question of policy. But Biden simply feels that he can't do that. My final point to you is it's important to understand that the lobby's power has grown since 1982. Israel's first real problem with public opinion in the United States and with the elite, with opinion in the elite, was the 1982 invasion of Lebanon. And then, of course, after that, you had the first intifada in the late 1980s, then the breakdown of the Oslo process, then the second intifada. 
and so forth and so on. And over the course of time, Israel's reputation in the United States has suffered greatly. As a result, the lobby has had to redouble its efforts to defend Israel. So the lobby that you're dealing with today is a more formidable lobby than the lobby that Ronald Reagan was dealing with, and certainly than Dwight Eisenhower was dealing with. And it is very difficult, extremely difficult for any president to take on the lobby. Well, that that brings me, you, you answered one of the questions I, I had, uh, but I guess since we're on uh, the topic of uh, Michigan and, and voting, does it actually make a difference who the president is when it comes to major foreign policy questions and particularly Palestine. We see a lot of argument about this going backwards and forwards and saying, well, you know, uh, Trump, Biden is terrible, but Trump would be a, a, an even bigger disaster. I can tell you from the perspective of Palestinians, there's nothing worse than genocide. Genocide is as bad as it gets. And it's the worst case scenario now. Does it matter? Who, who people vote for when it comes to these questions? From a Palestinian perspective, no. Uh, it's uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Uh, the president will provide unconditional support for Israel, whether he or she is a Democrat or a Republican. So I just don't think it matters. Professor Mearsheimer, um it's, you know, that the U.S. seems to lurch from losing war to losing another war, leaving a wake of death and destruction in its path from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq to Libya to Syria, Yemen, Ukraine, and now Gaza. Why? What, what is it about the U.S.'s drive to invade, destroy other countries, and leave nothing but destruction and death in its wake and and how how should we be looking at what's happening in Gaza now as as part of that pattern well i think that uh in the case of the gaza war uh you're dealing with a different situation than uh, some of the previous conflicts that you mentioned take the vietnam war for example the vietnam war was largely a result of America's belief in the domino theory. We believed at the time that if Vietnam became communist, other countries in Southeast Asia and eventually all over Asia and then eventually all over the globe would become communist. Uh, this was a remarkably foolish idea, but it's what motivated us. Uh, and then a lot of the wars that you described were a result of what happened after 9-11 where the United States went on a rampage and decided it was going to run around the world and promote democracy at the end of a rifle barrel. We would do social engineering at the end of a rifle barrel. The Gaza war and the Ukraine war have different causes than Vietnam and those other conflicts. Uh, and I could go into them, but I won't do it at this point in time. But I think the point is that it all depends on the particular context of each of those wars as to why we got into them. But the general point I would make about all of them is that one thing the United States does not have is a good sense of the limits of military force. Most realists like me 
understand that you can't really do that much with armies, especially if you get into the business of doing social engineering around the world. It just hardly ever works uh, because what you do inevitably is you run into nationalism. I mean, this is what happened in Vietnam. What defeated us in Vietnam was not communism. It was Vietnamese nationalism. And by the way, the reason that the Israelis are never going to succeed in beating the Palestinians into submission, the reason that the Iron Wall, to use Ziv Yabotinsky's famous phrase, is never going to work is because of nationalism, Palestinian nationalism. And the Israelis refuse to recognize that. And what I'm saying is, in a very important way, Americans, uh, American policymakers have failed to appreciate the power of nationalism and how that gets in the way of using military force in effective ways. Uh, and uh, as I say, I think that this is the principal problem the Israelis face. Uh, in Gaza, and it's why the United States is remarkably foolish uh, to be supporting uh, the Israelis, not only, of course, because it's going to fail, they're not going to uh, defeat uh, Hamas decisively, but also because we are complicitous in a genocide, and that is an absolutely horrible situation. It should be categorically unacceptable uh, to every person in the administration. Coming back uh, for a moment to to uh, the the question of the role of the Israel lobby, you you used the term democracy promotion. I don't think that's your term. I, I don't I don't think that that's what um, the various administrations have called their activities, whether in, it's in Iraq or in uh, Afghanistan or other countries the U.S. has invaded, I would say that the United States has a pretty unbroken record of opposition to democracy around the world, in Latin America, in Africa, in uh, really everywhere, and Europe as well. I mean, Europe, where, where they claim they share values, uh, we know that after World War II, the United States was very closely involved in making sure that uh, democratically elected communists couldn't come to power in countries like Italy and so on. And uh, even as recently as uh, the Trump administration, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, a left-wing leader, a pro-Palestinian leader, um, a uh, someone who has a history of opposing U.S. militarism, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, said the U.S., wouldn't allow him to come to power, basically. So it's not just so-called third world countries that where the U.S. will put the boot down. It's it's among its so-called allies as well. So in that context, um, some critics of the of 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 your book with Stephen Walt, the Israel lobby, have said, as we've spoken about, that the lobby is very powerful in terms of its influence on U.S. politicians, its control of public discourse, but that U.S. policies in the region would not be that much different if the lobby didn't exist. They say, for example, that since the U.S. Uh, has never supported uh, an anti-colonial liberation movement 
uh, outside of Palestine. Uh, just saying, you know, the in other words, U.S. opposition to democracy around the world is universal, not just when it comes to Palestinians. Therefore, there's something bigger here. They, their criticism would be that, in a sense, uh, we're scapegoating the lobby for U.S. anti-democratic imperial policies that would be the case anyway. And that, yes, maybe the lobby makes a difference in detail or degree, but not the thrust of the overall policy. The U.S. would still be anti-Palestinian absent the lobby. That's the argument. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Uh, first of all, I want to be clear that I understand that the United States over the course of uh, the 20th century and into the early 21st century uh, has toppled many democratic regimes. I, I do believe that it different points along the way, especially after 9-11, we got into the business of democracy promotion. Uh, but I also believe that there are many instances of where we overthrew democracy. The United States, as I often emphasize, is a ruthless country. Uh, but just to go to your main point, look, the reason we have an Israel lobby is because if we didn't have an Israel lobby, U.S. policy towards the Middle East would be very different. The reason you have a lobby, the reason it's so powerful, and the reason the lobby works over time is because the lobby wants to make sure that we don't treat Israel as a normal country. Now, to back that up, if you go back to Jimmy Carter, virtually every president has been interested in promoting a two-state solution, some more than others for sure. But presidents like Carter himself, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama were deeply interested in getting a two-state solution. Uh, and they could not do that. And why could they not do that? Because the lobby checked them at every turn. The reason we never even came close to getting a two-state solution, which we thought was in our interest, was because of the lobby. Furthermore, I would submit that if you look at U.S.-Iranian relations since at least the early 1990s, uh, the Iranians have on a number of occasions showed evidence that they wanted to improve relations. And when, for example, the Clinton administration began to go down that road, the lobby quickly moved in. The lobby has had its gun sights on Iran for a long, long time, and that makes it almost impossible for us to improve our relations with Iran, which a number of presidents have wanted to do. So I would submit that if you look uh, at American policy towards the Middle East, um, and you think about what it would be if there were no lobby to put pressure on American presidents vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians and vis-a-vis -vis Iran, you'd have a different American policy. I, yeah, I, I, um, I want to push back on that a little bit too, because, you know, I think that uh, when we look at, for example, the way that the military industrial complex works, uh, when we look at the way that U.S. imperialism works around the world, when, you know, we, we, we examine how Israel was uh, established uh, as as the early Zionists said, as a as a settler colonial rampart of European values in in the Middle East, and how 
the U.S. has used uh, Israel um, as a battering ram um, to intimidate and, and to destroy uh, you know, uh, sovereign nations around it in the region. Um, it, you know, I, I think, I think that, that, uh, you know, I agree with Ali, like there's, um, if, if the lobby didn't exist, I, I don't see that there would be a difference in U.S. Well, policy. Joe Biden said repeatedly that if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent one. Right, right. Is that, I mean, is that in a sense the the kind of the crux of it? That uh, I, I don't believe that for one second. Yeah. Mm. I don't believe that for one second. If you went back to 1948 and you had two alternative futures, one with a state of Israel and one without a state of Israel, the United States from a security point of view would be much better off without Israel. How widespread do you think that view is uh, in uh, U.S. Uh, establishment or elite circles to the extent that you have access to their thinking? I, it's impossible to say because nobody would articulate that view publicly or even privately to most people for the simple reason that it would get you into one well of a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. Um but you do not want to underestimate how many people inside the foreign policy establishment, including the intelligence community, or I should say especially in the intelligence community, who think that Israel is a strategic liability. I, I've actually seen more people expressing that over the last few months than, uh, than, than, I, than I can remember. Uh, the sorts of people I would never have expected to hear say it will now say that uh, openly on uh, various YouTube channels, uh, some of which you, you appear on. Uh, and of course, that's a discussion that never happens on MSNBC or CNN or or in the New York Times. I mean, what, what do you think about the... You what, can't, what, you can't make those arguments. You'd lose your job in a second. That's the effectiveness of the lobby. I mean, you just cannot underestimate how difficult it is to criticize Israel if you're in a mainstream position. We have this alternative media out there, which you were just referring to. And of course, the electronic intifada is part of this, where people talk about Israel in a frank way. They treat Israel as a normal country. They treat Israel as a normal uh interest group in the United States. They treat Jews as normal people. This is what happens in the alternative media. But the alternative media is fundamentally different uh, than the mainstream media with regard to these issues. Hmm. What do you see about uh, the trajectory here? I mean, there was a time not so long ago when this alternative, of course, there's always been alternative media, but in terms of its reach, it it was much harder when you know you had to print newsletters and mail them around. The fact that we can have these discussions and they do reach tens or hundreds of thousands of people, and then you multiply the effect of different independent media. At a certain point, do you see the situation within the United States in particular changing? How long can elite establishment, 
discourse and policy be completely insulated from the uh, from popular opinion. I mean, I guess it always has been, except for brief moments. Do you see anything fundamental that that is shifting? Yeah, there's no question that big change is taking place. What it exactly means is very hard to say. Let me just make a number of points on this. First of all, if we went back 10 years uh, and you and I were talking about this, we were all talking about these issues, uh, we would be operating in a world where hardly anybody called Israel an apartheid state. Uh, And the idea that Israel would be accused of genocide uh, against the Palestinians was almost unthinkable, right? It just wasn't in the cards 10 years ago. We're now in a world where 50% of Joe Biden's supporters think that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Just think about that. 50% of Joe Biden's supporters in the 2020 election think that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. This is truly remarkable. And with regard to apartheid, right, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, B'Tselem have all written lengthy reports that lay out in detail why Israel is an apartheid state. Uh, And the point is, the situation is not going to get better. Ten years from now, the situation, I believe, in greater Israel, which includes Gaza and the West Bank, will be worse than it is today because Israel is an apartheid state. And to run an apartheid state in this day and age, you have to dehumanize the Palestinians. This will be visible to everyone. The Palestinians will continue to resist. People will continue to say, why is this going on? Why aren't we doing certain things to stop it? And so forth and so on. Furthermore, you're going to see a continuing erosion of support for Israel among younger Jews and certainly among younger Democrats and younger people in the United States as well. In the age of the internet, you just can't hide this stuff the way you did when I was a kid, right? When I was young, there was no internet. And my thinking about Israel was informed largely by Leon Uris's book called Exodus, uh, which portrayed the Palestinians as the bad guys and the Israelis as the good guys. That world is so far behind us, it's hard to believe. We just live in a completely different world. So there's no question that it's going to be increasingly difficult for the lobby to keep the American body politic on board. The $64,000 question, and I was alluding to this before, is whether or not they can, the lobby can continue um, to influence policymakers, both on Capitol Hill and in the White House, in ways that overcome that change in public opinion. That's the big question. Kind of in my heart, I say that things have to change. American policy has to change. But in my head, I tend to say that what we'll have for the foreseeable future is more of the same. Obviously, I hope my heart wins wins out over my head and my crystal ball, uh, which you were referring to, uh, has a big crack in it on this particular issue. Well, uh, I agree that unless Israel is defeated and Palestine is liberated, before 10 years, you're probably right that things will be worse. But I think that we live in a world where the possibility of liberation should not be 
discounted. But speaking of heart, I want to ask you another question because, again, you know, you uh, as a realist and realism as um, a school of thought uh, are often accused of being heartless. You are clearly not heartless. You've written with great passion and compassion about the situation in, in Palestine and spoken about that today. But I want to ask you, as a realist, what role do morality and law play in international relations? What role do they play and what role should they play? Well, we all have both a moral compass and let's call it a strategic compass. In my case, it's a realist compass. When I look out at the world, I think of it in realist terms. And I obviously, as I hope is clear from our discussion today, have a moral compass. And I think about the world in moral terms as well as realist terms. Now, the question is, what's the relationship between moral considerations and realist considerations uh, in my mind? I think that there are, are a good number of instances where moral logic and strategic logic or realist logic line up and you can pursue a realist policy that is backed by uh, strategic, by, by moral logic. Uh, I, I often make the argument when the United States fought with, uh, fought against uh, Adolf Hitler in World War II, uh, that this was a case where strategic logic and moral logic lined up. It was a good war, the war against Adolf Hitler. I also think there are a lot of cases where uh, uh, there's no strategic logic at play. And I think the best case here is Rwanda. I was fully in favor of intervening in Rwanda in uh, the early 1990s because there's just simply no strategic logic at play. It didn't matter for the balance of power. For the balance of power. And from a moral point of view, my moral compass said, go in there and do everything you can to shut that genocide down as quickly as possible. So you have that those two sets of cases. But the really tricky cases are ones where the strategic logic points in one way, uh, one direction, and the moral logic or the moral compass points in the other direction. And my argument is that in international anarchy, in the world that we live in, uh, when the moral compass and the realist compass are at odds, you will act according to the dictates of realist logic, because underpinning realist logic is the motive of survival. And states want to survive, just like individuals want to survive, and they'll do what's ever necessary to survive. And if international law says to do something or moral logic or just war theory says to do something that is at odds with realist logic, uh, the leader will, uh, I believe, every time uh, go with realist logic, again, because of the survival imperative. Am I happy about this? No. Um, it's kind of depressing. It's why I titled my well-known book on realism, as you know, uh, Tragedy of Great Power Politics. There's a real tragic element to all of this, but it is the way the world works. And as you said, when you introduced me, it is important to realize uh, that, this, uh, uh, that this logic is at play, that there is this tragic element to international politics and to think about how to smartly navigate it. 
Professor Mishimer, we just have a couple minutes left, um, but I wanted to just uh, get your take on um, U.S. empire and the reaches of U.S. empire and the destructiveness and the immorality of it. Do you think that the U.S. empire is coming to an end, uh, especially when we look at how it is uh, co-authoring this genocide in Gaza? We, are, we saved the easy question. To yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> One minute or less, no. <laughs> uh, well, the truth is, Nora, I don't think of uh, the United States in terms of an empire. Uh, when I think when I use the word empire, I think of the British Empire, the French Empire. Uh, I think of the United States as a great power that has tremendous reach and interferes in the politics of every country on the planet. And Ollie was getting at this before. Uh, I have no doubt that the United States does not respect the sovereignty of almost every country on the planet. We're constantly meddling in everybody else's politics. But what matters most for me in terms of thinking about the world is the constellation of great powers. And I think that when I was young and grew up during the Cold War, uh, we lived in a bipolar world, and there were two countries that really mattered for shaping international politics. Uh, this is not to say other countries didn't matter, but the two countries that mattered most were the United States and the Soviet Union. In 1991, after the Soviet Union collapsed, and of course the Cold War ended, we moved into the unipolar moment. And the United States was the only great power. It was the only superpower on the planet. And this is when it became fashionable to talk about the United States as an empire because we were so powerful and we were doing so much meddling that it made sense to a lot of people to think about the United States as an empire. Whether you agree with that characterization of the United States as an empire or not during the unipolar moment, the key point I think that you want to keep in mind is that unipolarity came to an end in about 2017. It's just very important to understand that the world that we live in today is a multipolar world where you have three great powers, China, Russia, and the United States. So the United States, although it may be the most powerful state on the planet, has two rival great powers out there that cause the United States a lot of trouble and limit what the United States can do. China, indeed, is a peer competitor. It's not as powerful as the United States, but it's not that far away, and it's growing both economically and militarily. And with regard to Russia, what happened when Putin came to power in 2000 is that over the course of the next roughly 24 years, what he did was he brought the Russians back from the dead. Russia is once again a great power. And as it's demonstrating in Ukraine, it is in a position where it can thwart the West, which is another way of saying it can thwart the United States and cause us all sorts of problems. And of course, the Chinese can cause us all sorts of problems. So our power is much more limited today than it was during the unipolar moment. And it's not the end of empire, right? The United States, uh, in my opinion, was never really an empire, but one could argue that that's a definitional issue. But it is certainly a world in which the United States' maneuver room is much less and 
we have to be much more careful maneuvering through these troubled waters. All right. Well, we uh, could talk with you for much, much longer, but we know that you have to go. Um, professor John Mearsheimer, you're the Wendell Harris Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, the author of many books. Um, thank you so much for spending time thank with us you. today on the election. Thank you. Department. And I'll just add my thanks and say that uh, I I'm always fascinated listening to you. I learn a lot from listening to your many lectures and interviews on uh, YouTube. And uh, it's uh, really a pleasure to have you on. I hope we can have you back uh, soon. And thank you for making time for us. Yes, thank you, Nora. Thank you, Ollie. I enjoyed it much. And I do look forward to coming back again and uh, continuing the conversation because I'm convinced uh, that I did not convince you <laughs> well, well, uh, you, I mean, I'll say you convinced me and, you know, we, uh, I'll reveal a little secret here that we correspond from time to time. And you, ha you have utterly convinced me uh, in terms of Ukraine and in terms of a lot of other things. Uh, I don't always agree with you on every point. And um, I, but I always enjoy a good discussion and debate. And I always learn from you. And, and that's, that's the best we can hope for from these conversations, I think. The feeling is mutual. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Laura. Have a good day. Thanks, Thank you. You too. you too. Thank you. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada's live stream. Uh, we have a segment um, with Ali. Uh, about the new york new revelations in the new york times fraudulent journalism and uh, perpetuation of the uh, should we do that now should we do the news first what we'll do, do the news like? first and then we'll do yeah. that and yeah then we'll we we just to remind people we moved yeah. things around because we were so thrilled to have abu Bakr uh, abid on live from gaza yeah. and we we didn't want to miss that opportunity so we we We'll do the news now that we would have normally done at the beginning of the program. Exactly. So here's some of the news that we've been covering at the Electronic Intifada. The Palestinian Health Ministry announced on Tuesday that since October 7th, the Israeli military has killed nearly 30,000 Palestinians and wounded more than 70,000, with thousands more missing or buried under the rubble. Every single child in Gaza is facing death either by Israeli bombardments, starvation, or disease. More than one million children are living a catastrophic health emergency directly caused by Israel's ongoing blockade of humanitarian aid, according to a new report by Save the Children. In northern Gaza, which has been effectively cut off from aid deliveries by the Israeli military, one in six toddlers is acutely malnourished, says UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. Palestinian rights groups say that Israel has brazenly ignored the International Court of Justice's orders on January 26th to prevent genocidal acts, stop incitement to genocide, and, quote, enable the provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance to Palestinians in Gaza. Quote, Israel continues to deliberately attack hospitals, pushing the health sector out of service. 
while using starvation as a weapon of war, a coalition of Palestinian human rights organizations stated on Monday. Humanitarian aid delivery has declined since the ICJ ruling as Israel escalated its delegitimization campaign against the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, the groups added. Quote, the denial of aid delivery to northern Gaza is particularly alarming, they say. According to the United Nations, fewer than 20% of humanitarian aid missions during the first six weeks of the year for areas in northern Gaza were facilitated, while more than 50% were denied. Philippe Lazzarini, the head of UNRWA, said that the agency has not been able to complete a food aid delivery to northern Gaza for more than a month. Amnesty International released a similar statement on Monday admonishing Israel's failure to comply with the world court's orders. Heba Morayev, Amnesty International's regional director, warned the U.S., U.K., Germany, and other Western countries, quote, with influence over the Israeli government, that they, quote, must not stand by and watch as Palestinian civilians die preventable deaths due to bombardment, lack of food and water, the spread of diseases, and lack of health care. Morayev said that in light of the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, these states' support for Israel's actions, including its flouting of the ICJ's ruling, is indefensible and could violate their obligation to prevent genocide. For more, read my recent piece, Every Child in Gaza Faces Starvation, on electronicintifada.net. The Palestinian Health Ministry said that it has begun to monitor deaths among infants as a result of severe diaper rash, chronic diarrhea, and malnutrition in northern Gaza. On Tuesday, the ministry said that two infants died as a result of dehydration and malnutrition at Kamal Adwan Hospital in Beit Lahia, warning that a lack of water and malnutrition will kill thousands of children and pregnant women in the Gaza Strip. Michael Fakhri, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, told The Guardian on Tuesday that, quote, the speed of malnourishment of young children is astounding. The bombing and people being killed directly is brutal, but this starvation and the wasting and stunting of children is torturous and vile. It will have a long-term impact on the population physically, cognitively, and morally. All things indicate that this has been intentional, he said. Fakhri added that, quote, we, will, we have never seen a civilian population made to go so hungry, so quickly, and so completely that is the consensus among starvation experts. Israel is not just targeting civilians, it is trying to damn the future of the Palestinian people by harming their children. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, reported on Tuesday that at least 10 Palestinians were killed over the weekend when the Israeli army opened fire using guns and tanks on two separate occasions while crowds of Palestinians waited for humanitarian aid deliveries in Gaza City, in the northern half of Gaza, which has been effectively cut off by Israel. On Sunday, the Palestine Red Crescent Society and a United Nations team evacuated two dozen patients from Al-Amal Hospital in Khan Yunus in the southern Gaza Strip. The UN says that Al-Amal Hospital, quote, was subject to a prolonged siege and raids by the Israeli military until February 22nd, which resulted in at least 25 deaths and rendered it minimally functioning, according to the World Health Organization. 
The UN adds that, quote, despite prior coordination with the Israeli authorities for the staff members and vehicles, Israeli forces blocked the convoy, forced patients and staff from ambulances, and stripped the paramedics of their clothes. Three of the Red Crescent paramedics were subsequently detained, delaying the convoy for more than seven hours. Two of the paramedics remain in detention. On Monday, the PCRS announced the suspension of all humanitarian coordination procedures on medical missions in Gaza for 48 hours over, quote, failure to ensure the safety and security of the society's emergency medical service teams, the wounded and the sick in PCR PRCS hospitals, centers, and ambulances. Yesterday, on Tuesday, regarding the medical evacuation, the UN's humanitarian country team in Palestine stated that, quote, this was not an isolated incident. Aid convoys have come under fire and are systematically denied access to people in need. Humanitarian workers have been harassed, intimidated, or detained by Israeli forces, and humanitarian infrastructure has been hit. Just prior to Sunday's incident, two family members of Médecins Sans Frontières were killed in an unprompted attack by Israeli forces against a deconflicted compound where their staff and fam family members slept. The humanitarian country team uh, added that the UN and the Palestine Red Crescent Society staff had to leave another 31 non-critical patients at Al-Amal Hospital. PRCS nursing staff entertained displaced children whose families are still sheltering at the hospital in an effort to keep their spirits up. The UN also highlighted a report by Help Age, which advocates on behalf of older people, stating that the more than 111,000 elders in Gaza are among those most at risk of hunger, dehydration, illness, injury, and death. Older people in Gaza were already living with the long-term impact of conflict and displacement before the current Israeli attacks with re reduced access to essential health and social services. They are also disproportionately affected by non-communicable diseases and are likely to be severely impacted due to damage to health infrastructure and shortages in medication, the report said. Older people who have had to evacuate are said to be mostly accommodated in overcrowded shelters that are inadequate to meet their needs, as many require support to manage chronic health issues and disabilities. Finally, Tamara Nassar reported on the self-immolation of Aaron Bushnell. The following is from her report. On Sunday afternoon, a man dressed in a U.S. military uniform walked slowly to the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., calmly articulating his motives on camera before setting himself on fire. Aaron Bushnell, a 25-year-old serving member of the U.S. Air Force, introduced himself with composure. Quote, I will no longer be complicit in genocide, he declared, his gaze fixed away from the camera. I'm about to engage in an extreme act of protest, he continued, but compared to what people have been experiencing in Palestine at the hands of their colonizers, it is not extreme at all. Bushnell added, quote, this is what our ruling class has decided will be normal. One minute into the video, Bushnell arrives at the embassy gates and sets the camera down in a position to film himself. He can be seen standing at the gate of the embassy as he douses himself with flammable liquid from a bottle he had been carrying, 
dons his uniform hat and ignites the flames. All the while, even as he goes up in flames, he fervently chants, free Palestine. An officer can be seen brandishing a gun and pointing it at Bushnell as he burns and collapses to the ground. Another officer brings a fire extinguisher. As the first officer continues to point his gun at Bushnell, the second officer exclaims, I don't need guns, I need a fire extinguisher. Hours, hours before Bushnell's self-immolation, he posted on Facebook a link to video live streaming service Twitch, where he would be live streaming his protest. Quote, many of us like to ask ourselves, what would I do if I was alive during slavery or the Jim Crow South or apartheid? What would I do if my country was committing genocide? He wrote. The answer is you're doing it right now. Bushnell succumbed to his wounds later that day. A vigil, a vigil was held on Monday in the exact spot he had self-immolated the day before. Other vigils have happened or are scheduled to take place across the nation, including near Israeli embassies, including in New York City and Chicago and Portland, Oregon. Bushnell's protest was hailed by Palestinian and Yemeni resistance groups as a heroic act of honor. Hamas published a statement mourning Bushnell and held the Biden administration fully accountable for his death, quote, due to its policy that supported the Nazi Zionist entity in its war of extermination against our Palestinian people. The group continued, the heroic pilot, Aaron Bushnell, will remain immortal in the memory of our Palestinian people and the free people of the world and a symbol of the spirit of global human solidarity with our people and their just cause. The Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a leftist political party and resistance organization, also mourned Bushnell's death. The group expressed its, quote, full solidarity with the soldier's family and with all American solidarity activists who took an honorable position and did not stop their struggle and pressure to stop the genocidal war on the Strip. The group added, as tragic and painful as it may be, it is regarded as the highest sacrifice, accolade, and the most poignant message conveyed to the U.S. administration. Palestinians in Gaza mourned Bushnell and welcomed his act of solidarity. Hamas evoked the killing of Rachel Corey, the young American woman who was crushed to death with, with an Israeli bulldozer as she tried to prevent the demolition of a Palestinian family home in Rafah, the southernmost area of the occupied Gaza Strip, in March 2003. Rafa is, quote, the same city that Bushnell paid with his life for putting pressure on his country's government to prevent the criminal Zionist army from attacking it and committing massacres and violations there, Hamas said. For more on Aaron Bushnell and the international re reaction to his self-immolation, read Tamara Nassar's piece, Palestinians Mourn Heroic Aaron Bushnell on er electronicintifada.net. And you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada's live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with Ali Abunima. Uh, Ali, we, uh, before we go to John, um, you have a new report on the New York Times, as we said before. Yes, and I just also want to add my, just say something about Aaron Bushnell, uh, because I've seen so much hateful stuff going around about him online and i think it's important for us to uh remember him as he wanted to be remembered and spoke about he had a message and i think it's not our place to to analyze and to try to second guess 
what he did is is profound, almost incomprehensible. It's not unprecedented. Um, right. You know, the, there is a, a, a history of, of this kind of, um, he called it extreme protest, but it is just a selfless sacrifice, an act of love where he put, he valued the lives of, of Palestinians more than his own life. And uh, just an incredible, an incredible act. And one that, one that um, I hope has helped people understand what is going on. But uh, b- back to the uh, uh, the New York Times, um, there is there has been more fallout from the New York Times' uh, misreporting, uh, fraudulent reporting um, about. Uh, so-called mass rapes. And we've previously talked about Jeffrey Gettleman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, who is the lead reporter on this atrocity propaganda hoax alleging mass rapes. But in recent days, there's been intense scrutiny of his co-authors on that piece, Anat Schwartz and Adam Sella. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. What are we learning about Anat Schwartz, first off? Yeah, this started on Friday when a Twitter user called Zay Squirrel, a very popular account who we don't know who they are, but they they do quite incredible work and and they're very well known, uh, pointed out that Anat Schwartz may possess some very extreme anti-Palestinian views as indicated by her use of social media. Schwartz had liked very extreme anti-Palestinian posts on Twitter or X, For example, this one, which calls on Israel to turn Gaza into a slaughterhouse. Uh, Schwartz also liked posts that disseminated the debunked atrocity propaganda hoax about 40 Jewish babies being beheaded on October 7th. And perhaps one of the most significant indications of Schwartz's agenda was a post she liked, which argued that it was necessary to establish a narrative that Hamas equals ISIS in order to basically scare Westerners and and build support for Israel. A lot of it is very extreme stuff that she was consistently liking. Just liking a post on Twitter or Facebook, um, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you agree with it, though. Uh, For example, sometimes we use the like feature in order to bookmark a post for future reference or for research purposes. Um, Could there be an innocent explanation for this? Yeah, that that's possible. And as you said, I often like posts that I don't actually like, but it's just a way so I can find them later if in case I'm writing an article or, or whatever it may be. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. Once mm-hmm. attention focused on Schwartz, she made her Twitter account private for a while, scrubbed it of all the offensive content, and then made it public again. But she never posted any sort of uh, apology or explanation. But more significant, the New York Times itself seems to agree with the criticisms. We sent the New York Times questions about Anat Schwartz and also about the growing controversy over their mass rapes reporting. Unfortunately, most of those questions were ignored, but uh, the Times spokesperson, Danielle Rhodes-Ha, did send us this statement. She said, quote, we are aware that a freelance journalist in Israel who has worked with the Times has liked several social media posts. Those likes are unacceptable violations of our company policy. We are currently reviewing the matter. 
what else are we learning about Anat Schwartz and Adam Sella? Well, a lot of people are expressing consternation about the fact that Schwartz had never been a journalist before she was put on this very high-profile and sensitive story. She advertises herself as a filmmaker, and there's no record of her ever having done this kind of journalism. But all of a sudden in November, she pops up as a journalist for The New York Times, one of the world's most prestigious outlets. There's people who, you know, they spend years and years working at... Uh, less prestigious publications hoping for a gig at the New York Times. And here she comes out of nowhere. And the first story she wrote in November was indeed a regurgitation of atrocity propaganda from Israeli authorities. And as for Adam Seller, he's a recent college graduate with no experience on such a big story. Apparently, he was a food writer. And according to the research of podcaster Esha Krishnaswamy, Seller is Schwartz's nephew. So there is a real question here of nepotism and conflict of interest. Yeah. Um, and after her first article in November, Schwartz went on to write the big story on mass on so-called mass rapes with Jeffrey Gettleman and her nephew, Adam Sella, that came out at the end of December. Is that right? That's correct. They published their big story, Screams Without Words, on December 28th, and they claimed that it was the result of a two-month investigation, uh, and they say they interviewed more than 150 people. But actually, just a few months, uh, uh, sorry, a few weeks earlier, on December 4th, the same trio published an earlier article with the headline, What We Know About Sexual Violence During the October 7 Attacks on Israel. And it's curious to me that in that December 4th article, published well into their supposed two-month-long investigation, they do not claim to have identified a single victim or really found out anything themselves. Based on my reading, the December 4th article is just another regurgitation of atrocity claims from the Israeli government and other pro-Israel sources, the same claims that they would recycle in their December 28th article. The main thrust of the December 4th piece is to complain that too many people are skeptical of Israeli atrocity claims about mass rape for which no credible evidence has, had been produced up to that point or since. And even this shoddy article contained lies to try to bolster its credibility, lies that the New York Times actually had to retract. As you can see here, the New York Times added a correction on December 8th. It says, Quote, an earlier version of this article misstated the kind of evidence Israeli police have gathered in investigating accusations of sexual violence committed on October 7th in the attack by Hamas against, against Israel. The police are relying mainly on witness testimony, not on autopsies or forensic evidence, end quote. So as we've said all along, and as the Times is even forced to acknowledge here, there is no physical or forensic evidence backing up the mass rape claims. And the assertion by Gettleman and his team that such evidence existed in their article on December 4th was false. Uh, even to this day, there isn't a single living victim who has come forward, and no victim at all has been positively identified. We only have the very dubious and non-credible eyewitness accounts that we looked at in earlier live streams. But what this tells us is that 
at least someone at the New York Times knew that the team of Jeffrey Gettleman, Anad Schwartz, and Adam Seller was not reliable and was making false claims about the mass rape story. But they would still be allowed to go on and publish their big fraudulent investigation on December 28th. Incredible. Um, Ali, we've previously spoken about how the family of Gal Abdush, uh, a woman that they profiled, they built, basically built the story around uh, their article that came out on December 28th. Uh, the family has come out and repudiated repudiated the Times's claim that Abdush was raped. Um, her own sister, Miral Alter, said that there was absolute, absolutely no evidence of that and that the Times manipulated and misled the family. Um, has more information come out about the Times's unethical practices here? Yes. In fact, something uh, that we missed earlier, and I think is very significant, was pointed out in January by a person who goes by the name Tali on Twitter. Uh, back in January, Yediat Ahronat, a major Israeli uh, newspaper, interviewed a woman who filmed the video of Gal Abdush, the so-called video of the woman in a black dress. This video does not show uh, Abdush being raped but it shows her body in a position that Gettleman and company claimed suggests she was raped, a suggestion that Abdush's own sister and other family members strongly deny, as you pointed out. But apparently the woman who took the video, her name is Eden Wesley, had to be pressured to release it to the Times. And she says that uh, Anat Schwartz and Adam Sello were very persistent. Uh, Wesley says, and this was in Hebrew to Yediat Ahranat, quote, at first I didn't consider it meaningful. I didn't understand how important it was, but they didn't give up. They called me again and again and explained how important this is to Israeli Hasbara, end quote. Hasbara is, of course, the Hebrew term for Israeli state propaganda. So it seems that Schwartz and Seller, who were working under Jeffrey Gettleman, were convincing people to talk to them for the mass rape story by telling them that it would help Israeli propaganda. So the, it was very clear that from that that they had a specific agenda. No kidding. Um, one of our criticisms of the New York Times mass rapes article is that it relied extensively on Zaka, uh, a Jewish extremist organization whose members... Uh, are are known to have fabricated numerous atrocity stories about October 7th. Um, and, and I understand that there's new information about Zaka. Well, yeah, Zaka is getting more scrutiny, and that's a good thing. Uh, Zaka itself was founded by a man who was accused of multiple rapes, and he, he um, uh, died by suicide uh, when these allegations uh, came out in Israel in uh, in in the last couple of years and other Zaka officials attempted to help him cover up that um, those rape accusations. Uh, Zaka portrays itself as a selfless volunteer organization that recovers bodies from crime scenes so they can have a proper Jewish burial. Uh, but as we've discussed before, that's not what it is at all. Um, the Intercept just published this piece pointing out how American media continue to credulously repeat Zaka's lies, including from one of its key uh, people, a man called Yossi Landa. We've talked about his lies before, even though they have been thoroughly debunked and rejected, even by mainstream Israeli media. 
Shockingly, or perhaps not so shockingly, the New York Times published a glowing puff piece about Zaka by reporter Shira Frankel in mid-January. And this is long after it was clear that Zaka routinely fabricated atrocity stories that, again, had been debunked in Israeli mainstream media. The Intercept writes, quote, the Times report on Zaka reads like a glowing portrait of selfless volunteers on a holy mission to honor the dead and give families closure in accordance with Jewish law. The article could also be read as a whitewash of an organization mired in sexual abuse and financial scandals for decades. The Times never notes that Landau, that's Yossi Landau, appears to be a serial fabulist and other Zaka volunteers tell stories that stretch credulity, end quote. And here's a pretty incredible discovery by journalist Aaron Maté. Zaka has a New York advisory board, probably to help with fundraising. One of its members, uh, he's still listed on the Zaka website, is Stuart Seldowitz. He was the former U.S. diplomat under President Barack Obama, who recently accepted a plea deal in a hate crimes case against him. You'll recall the viral videos of him repeatedly abusing a food cart vendor in New York City with anti-Palestinian, anti-Muslim rants. Let's just take a look at this very short clip uh, to remind ourselves of who Stuart Seldowitz is. Why, if we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, you know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Go, 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 go. Yeah, so that's who's on the, uh, who Zaka selected for uh, for its advisory board. And I just want to note here that while U.S. media continue to spread unverified and debunked atrocity propaganda about mass rapes and other alleged atrocities on October 7th, they're ignoring the mounting evidence, including direct witness testimonies of sexual violence and torture against Palestinian women by Israeli soldiers. Exactly. Yeah, just crickets. Um, Other than the statement that we got from the Times about Anat Schwartz, is the newspaper finally addressing the fundamental problems with the Gettleman article at all? No, not yet. Other than the statement we received about Anat Schwartz, and which has also been sent uh, to other publications, the Times has so far failed to address the growing scandal. Ryan Grimm, a journalist with The Intercept, reported that sources at the New York Times told him that the newspaper is now cutting ties with Anat Schwartz after her social media history was exposed. He also reminds us, and we discussed this as well in a previous live stream, that editors at the New York Times' own podcast, The Daily, have been unable to produce an episode of their podcast based on the mass rapes article that Schwartz uh, worked on with Gettleman and Seller because the producers found it to be so full of holes. So there's a risk that the Times will just try to make this about Anna Schwartz and throw her under the bus in order to distract attention from the bigger questions. Who assigned and oversaw the Gettleman propaganda piece alleging mass rapes? Why is the New York Times ignoring the growing internal and external concern and anger over its promotion of false atrocity propaganda that is being used by Israel to justify genocide? 
And remember, this is a newspaper that uses its prestige and cachet to give credence to major stories and has repeatedly used that name brand to push propaganda and lies, such as Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. The New York Times apologized for that, but it has not changed its ways. As long as it refuses to retract the Gettleman, Schwartz, Seller, mass rapes fraud and to account transparently for how this came about, you can say that the New York Times is only adding to the Palestinian blood it already has on its hands. Indeed. Well, uh, looks like this story just won't go away. So we will keep um, reporting on it and updating as necessary. Ali, thank you so much for continuing to be on this. Um, and yeah, we'll just we'll just keep knocking away. <laughs> Here we go. I, I, I'm sure as much as we want to put this story away, you know, and again, I'll just say this. One thing I didn't address in that piece, but we'll come back to. In a previous live stream, we talked about Sheryl Sandberg, yeah. the former Facebook official. She's been in this from <coughs> the beginning. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah. <that>? Excuse me. <clears throat> we'll we'll come back to that. Let's let's yeah. go on. Yeah, there's much more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's astonishing. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, we're now going to turn to our colleague John Elmer. Uh, John, hi, John. Hi, guys. <laughs> Great show. I know yeah, uh, it's 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 already been a hundred minutes and and we're just getting started. Um, John, I know there's been a fierce battle in Zaytun in Gaza City that's lasted now over a week. Uh, let's start there. Bring us up to date with what's been happening on the ground. Yeah, just let me say a great show. It was great to have Abu Bakr on. He's done great work um, throughout this horror show that he's been living for the last 145 days. So it was really great to have him on. And it was uh, a very interesting interview with John Mearsheimer. It was good to have Professor Mearsheimer on. And I can't believe that that New York Times story just keeps piling on. It's it's one of the great media scandals uh, of our lifetime. And watching the New York Times try to avoid that, um, it's been incredible to watch. And I just want to say on your report, Nora, you did a great job covering the news. I, I just want to say that what we're watching is appalling. Um, the footage of the, the King of Jordan uh, pretending he's a special forces commander pushing food aid out of the back of a, uh, of a C-130 transport plane into the sea and having thousands of Palestinians along the shoreline, mostly children, wading into the sea to get this food aid, as if uh, it, it, this is some far off place that nobody can get to. Um, but we know that the Israelis can get to the border and have demonstrations that block these trucks uh, and these countries. It was Jordan just doing these airlifts, uh, these airdrops? But now I noticed uh, yesterday's airdrop a bunch of other countries have tried to get in on this as if uh, these airdrops are somehow showing their decency um, when really they're just an appalling scene. Uh, I can't believe we're watching. Um, so yeah, the Battle of Zaytun, uh, Israel reinvaded Gaza City um, last week. And you, you never know when a fight uh, gets to have the moniker of being called a battle um, that will stay through time. But it seems to be this battle in Zaytun is going to be 
uh, one of the battles in the war that uh, that sticks around. Israel is attempting to build um, effectively a highway, uh, cutting off the uh, the southern Gaza Strip from the north, uh, cutting off Gaza City. Uh, and in order to do that, they've been battling in Zaytun for the last 10 days. So maybe we'll, we'll start with uh, uh, a sniper operation that the Qassam Brigades uh, carried out, number one here, Tamara. This is uh, the Qassam Brigades. This is their 34th Al Ghul operation. And we're watching a sniper here setting up, looking at Israeli snipers. So it's snipers on snipers here. And you can see that the, the loopholes that the Israelis have knocked out of that building there. And we can juxtapose that with the Palestinian ones. And here we're seeing a thermal camera. And if you look at the building, you can see the loopholes are knocked in both sides of the floor, which just makes them very easy to see. And of course, uh, the Kassam Brigade sniper unit is on top of them. We're seeing a thermal camera here that shows that there's troops inside uh, that building. Um, this week, the Kassam Brigade said that they have filed throughout the war 30 field reports um, of sniper attacks of 57 different attacks. So 57 attacks in 30 field reports um, demonstrating something that the Qassam Brigades have said, which is that after these sniper operations, their snipers leave the scene and move on to a different location and report back at the end. So you can see the thermal camera showing that there's Israeli forces uh, inside those loopholes that they've knocked outside of the buildings. Um, and of course, these Israeli snipers have wreaked havoc on the civilians um, in Gaza. Um, they've made it the streets of Gaza a killing field. Um, and so you see sniper on sniper here, and uh, a Qassam sniper taking out an Israeli sniper um, the next day after this, uh, the day actually before this video, within the hours before this video was launched, the Israelis uh, claimed casualties in the north um, and almost surely uh, were looking at one of those there because we can see that there's, um, there's soldiers in behind those loopholes that we can see on this thermal vent, uh, imaging here. Um, and so the Israelis did, although they cover up their casualties, they did report uh, on this. Um, and maybe we can show after this runs through tomorrow. Um, I can show, I, I cut a clip for people because uh, about whether uh, the wall, the cinder block wall does anything against this 50 cal uh, anti-materiel rifle that the Al Ghul is. And we can see from this footage from a shooting range that it clears uh, it goes the the round the Al Ghul round goes clear clean through um, these cinder block walls, blowing the back of the wall out. Um, this weapon, the Al Ghul, is used. It's an anti materiel rifle. It's used against hardware uh, positions. And here's another example that shows that even two cinder blocks don't make any difference. So um, the power of this rifle um, is is a significant part uh, of its asset. Um, it's also a, a more precise rifle as well, um, but it's used, I mean, American troops in Iraq used uh, rifles like this against unexploded ordnance to detonate bombs. Um, their first use in military uh, was used against armored vehicles uh, in the First and Second World War. So um, it's a significant weapon and the, the wall provides um, no concealment. So maybe we can go to uh, the second one after this shows that clearly that's a clay, um, a hunk of clay that was set behind the wall. 
um, here. Maybe we can go to number two, Tamara. This is uh, Saraya Al-Quds. This is Islamic Jihad um, using a similar rifle. Um, and you can see them going up the stairs, the fighters, and you can see they see the window <laughs> and they act accordingly. Uh, moving around the window. And we've seen from previous Saraya al-Quds Islamic Jihad videos um, and Qassam videos as well, that the fighters are moving through the city, moving through holes and walls, moving through tunnels. Um, and you see the Saraya al-Quds sniper here calibrating his, uh, getting his range. That's on the card. He's got angles, distance, wind, things to incorporate uh, when you're carrying out a sniper operation over uh, a long distance. Um, and again, we can see in this video, we've, we've edited out, uh, the end of the video, but, um, the soldiers drop in that video as well, clearly, uh, being hit. Um, and so this is Sarail Kuds. They have the capabilities that we're seeing, um, in this week's videos are something that, uh, we've talked about for weeks. And again, just to say all the videos that we're going to watch today are all from the past week. Um, these are all happening in Khan Yunus or uh, in Gaza City, where the main uh, focus of the battle is. But that's where the ground war is taking place. We know that every single day the air war continues on the population of Gaza. Israel is, hasn't is still killing a hundred people a day in airstrikes in safe areas, um, killing civilians in their homes. Uh, but in terms of the ground battle, it's been focused on Khan Yunus and um, and Zaytun in Gaza City. So uh, maybe we can switch to number three here, Tamara, because the way the anti-materiel rifle works and the distance that it covers, more than two kilometers, um, we can see here in this Qassam video from Zaytun, they're, they're showing us here the reconnaissance that the fighters have of the medevac helicopters, also something that we've been following throughout the war. Uh, we don't have confirmation on this, but it seems very clear now, 144 days on, um, that the Palestinian resistance is not targeting these uh, these medevacs. And maybe we could do the next one after this one rolls tomorrow, because there's there's two shots that the Qassam Brigades showed this week um, of monitoring helicopters that are well within range um, of the the Al Ghul, especially in terms of um, because you don't to 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 penetrate a helicopter. Um, you don't need the round to be significant. So the distance um, that the weapon is effective is, is can be up to two and a half kilometers, which we're seeing is within range. So this is Qassam showing medevac flights. Israel says that they've carried, the Israeli Air Force this week said that they've carried out 500 of these medevacs. You can see the helicopter landing there. Um, that's smoke that the Israeli forces put up as concealment so that the the fighters can't do what we're watching right now, namely watch them. Um, but we're also seeing in that footage there civilian ambulances. So Israel feels confident that they're not, that their medevacs are not being targeted because you can see there in that footage, that's not a, um, that's, uh, and there you can see the smoke screen um, to try to conceal their position. But it appears, and again, there was a field report yesterday from the Qassam Brigade saying that they were watching these helicopters. Um, so that footage really um, gives you a sense of, of how close they are. The Gaza Strip's only six kilometers wide at but, this stage. And if, if the shoe were on the other foot, John, if this were Israeli forces watching Palestinian Red Crescent workers trying to evacuate Let's not say Qassam fighters, let's say a child named Hind, for example, 
what do you think the Israeli forces would have done in that situation? Do we need to speculate about that? No, I mean, we've seen brutal cases of medics being targeted, directly being targeted. The, the case you were talking about is a six-year-old girl who phoned uh, Palestinian Red Crescent paramedics um, and asked them to come and save her over the course of several hours. Um, and the next day, and they did, which they always do, the Red Crescent uh, paramedics. I, I'll, I'll just say they're the best among us. Um, they're incredible people. And um, they went to, to Hin's um to the massacre where the, her entire family was killed in front of her eyes and left in the car with her. And the Israelis killed them in the ambulance. And when people went the next day to, to find him, they found the paramedics and their ambulance destroyed um, as well. And what it looks to be, um, again, we haven't talked to the fighters, so we don't have confirmation, but it appears that the Palestinians are not targeting um, these medevac uh, air flights. And the Israelis said they've carried out more than 500 of these medevac flights. Um, and although they, if you remember back in November, uh, about 10 days into the ground operation, the Israelis said that they had carried out 250 medevacs. Um, so we know that those numbers aren't true, um, but we're talking about hundreds of helicopter flights um, that, the, um, that the resistance is clearly uh, has chosen to not target targeting soldiers. And again, we talked about this last week because the Qassam fighter said in um, in one of their videos last week that their fighters go where the Israelis tell them um, the next battle is going to take place, the way they evacuate the civilian population. The fighters then go to that area to fight, um, but still Israel massacres um, civilians. Because in a lot of ways, of course, the civilians are the target of this operation. And the chief of staff of the IDF, uh, Halevi, he spoke to his troops, he spoke to officers on the northern border um, the other day and he said that um that he he was giving them uh, encouragement saying another hamas battalion you dismantle he's talking about the achievements he listed them another hamas battalion you dismantle another uh, underground infrastructure and get this another un, another neighborhood where the population evacuates to safe areas all of these push for the release of our hostages so he's including the ethnic cleansing as an achievement uh, of the Israeli army. And the same chief of staff, Halevi, uh, released a communique to his soldiers uh, a week ago that said, which tells you really everything you need to know about this operation. He said, guys, we are not on a killing spree, a revenge spree, or a genocide. Um, do not steal uh, people's belongings, do not take trophies, and do not shoot trophy videos, which we know is essentially built into the Israeli uh, uh project here, these TikTok videos, um, they're not individual soldiers taking a video with their buddy. We've seen and you can see and check it out in all of these TikToks that you see, there's dozens of soldiers involved. Um, when those uh, the women soldiers took that photo, uh, trophy photo last week that people probably saw in the ruins, um, there's dozens of people in those photos. So and we also know that the IDF themselves, their operations uh, department ran one of these snuff channels uh, where their soldiers submit the videos of torture and murder of Palestinians and then the um, mutilating their bodies. Um, all stories that, of course, the New York Times covered uh, that didn't exist, but of course it does exist for Palestinians and we don't see any of that covered uh, in the New York Times. So maybe we can go to number five here tomorrow because this is... Um, 
Um, these are some, these are Yassin strikes. This is in Zaytun. We can see a tank's going to arrive uh, on the scene here and be hit before the active defense, um, before the active protection system on the tank um, can activate. And again, this, this was a casualty report that the Israelis put out just before this video emerged that said two, um, two tank crew were um, seriously injured in a strike. Um, and another soldier was killed fighting Hamas uh, in Zaytun. So then Hamas, within hours, released that video that clearly showed a sniper kill. Um, and then there, I, I, I believe what you're seeing there is what they said were the two tank um, tank crew injured. And so, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on. But that's that's a strike to injure the tank crew means you've penetrated the armor of the of the vehicle. Um, and those fixes aren't simple. You don't just take them to your base and strap a piece of armor on them. Um, they're significant, especially that shot, which appears to be hitting the hull. Um, the hull on the Merkava tank is what um, is what separates it from other tanks. It's weight and it's thickness of armor on the on the bottom parts because they don't have to fly with these vehicles. Um, they can make them super heavy. But because of that, um, strikes like this, which damage crew, which are also difficult to train, um, at some point there's a, there's a limit to these. Um, so maybe we could do number six here too tomorrow. So this is also in Zaytun. And we can see the fighters here again, uh, carefully moving through the streets um, that Israel says that in November <laughs> that they had absolute uh, operational control over. They clearly don't. There's another strike on a vehicle there uh, on a Merkava tank um, also before the active protection system can um, can uh, engage. And so these fighters are here in this video sitting in the bushes uh, waiting here for a tank that drives by I don't know how many feet that is, 40 feet away, um, well within, uh, too close for active protection system um, to operate. And we're also seeing here, um, we can see that fighter there is holding uh, a Yassin 105. Um, fighters are still choosing um, appropriate weapons is the language that they use, uh, meaning that there isn't any indication that they're running out of these. They're not using uh, any weapon. They're using the weapon that's the most important, uh, the most appropriate for these strikes. And also these videos, as I said about the Israeli casualty report that matched these videos coming out, we're also seeing these videos from Gaza City released within hours of the operations. You can tell by the field reports uh, and by the videos that these are being released within hours. So there, there's no disruption um, to the media ops department. The fighters are moving through Zaytun um, because there's no operational uh, control for the Israelis, as we've reported throughout this war. It's a series of lies that the New York Times, among others, republishes to say 10,000 Hamas fighters have been killed, which there's simply no way 10,000 Hamas fighters would be killed. Even if you included the municipal workers, which Israel is almost certainly including, um, because they're killing family members of the municipal government run by Hamas and then counting them as, as Hamas fighters. Um, so maybe after this rolls this last time tomorrow, we can go to number seven. Um, because the fighting is also, uh, it's taking place in Zaytun, major battles in Zaytun, but Israel said that they've also uh, uh, taken over uh, and cleared Khan Yunus, which we clearly show is not the case. Maybe number seven here tomorrow. This is a, a strike 
uh, from an elevated firing position uh, on a Namer troop carrier uh, in Khan Yunus. And so this is one, what we're watching here and what we've been watching for the last three videos is one of 1,200 uh, Yassin strikes, uh, the indigenous produced uh, RPG uh, round and warhead that are developed are produced as a clone of a Soviet weapon uh, produced in the Gaza Strip uh, and given to their fighters. More than 1,200 Yassin strikes against tanks and armored vehicles, um, and many of them that we know uh, penetrate. And that's just the Kassam brigades. That's just effectively the national army. And then there's, as I showed on the show last week, there's 10 other guerrilla groups that operate within the Gaza Strip that also have their own weaponry, not as much, not as significant as the tandem charge uh, Yassin warhead, but RPG charges. Um, they have, uh, the Palestinians also have Shawath devices, um, explosively formed penetrators um, that have been used against armored vehicles. Um, and so we're seeing uh, wear and tear. Now let's hop to the next one here, number eight, Tamara. And then maybe we can just pause it um, when we see the vehicle uh, that's right here. Pause it maybe here if you can. So the question has been asked, how, how many of these tanks can you hit uh, before the Israelis' uh, uh, ground operation is impaired? And what we're seeing here is a vehicle that's older than any of us on this show. Um, this is a 1960s era uh, M113, which is a, a, an aluminum armored personnel carrier uh, that the Americans created in order for it to be put on planes, to be airdropped or to be put on uh, boats and for sea landings. Um, They're not uh, able to perform uh, under the, the pressures of urban warfare in the 21st century. Uh, in fact, in the 1973 Yom Kippur War, um, they performed so poorly uh, that there was uh, articles and discussion within the Israeli uh, intelligence and military industries about a solution to this problem in 1973. Um, in 1978, in the invasion of Lebanon and the siege of Beirut, the M113 that we're looking at right here uh, wasn't allowed on the front lines. They were just a, a battlefield bus, as they call it, that would shuttle the troops within a couple hundred uh, meters of the front lines because they couldn't handle uh, battle in um, in the 1978 Yom Kippur War. Um, so maybe just roll it here tomorrow because the Israelis have up-armored these. They've added additional armor that you can see on the back. So it's not as weak as the original vehicle but it has absolutely no chance against that round that you're seeing fired at its back door, which is its weakest point, um, destroying this M113. And this is a second one. I can't identify this one because they're pulling out these vehicles from storage um, that they haven't used in more than a decade. And um, just, well, these loop a couple times to show you that there's no way anyone survived uh, in that vehicle. In 2004, the last time... Israel said this is the last time that we're ever going to use M113s in Gaza it was in 2004 when in Gaza City they were hit by an IED and destroyed two of their armored vehicles M113s that you're seeing there and killed everybody inside. In 2004, a generation before the Yassin, which is a tandem charge warhead that would penetrate, as I showed on a couple shows ago, uh, would penetrate uh, 600 millimeters of armor. And that vehicle you're looking at there has less than 20. Um, and so it doesn't stand a chance against these. And in 2014, the Israelis called it the APC disaster when their M113 was hit. 
Um, and the, it, the IDF had to come out and say to the public that M113s will no longer be operating inside Gaza. But we know that they were used inside Gaza again, because in 2014, the Battle of Shajaiya began with an armored convoy uh, entering Shajaiya and being hit by an ambush um, in these vehicles, M113s. And the Qassam Brigades talk about um, stopping. The Israelis said that the, the M113 stalled. Um, Qassam said that they stopped the armored column and then attacked these vehicles separately. Um, but they entered the back of the vehicles. They opened the doors and entered the back of the APCs and captured a soldier. And at the time of the attack in Shujaia, um, the Israelis believed that they had lost many soldiers to capture in this vehicle. And that's what led to the massacre in Shujaia when they, um, they massacred the civilian population because of the stunning defeat that their forces faced in Shujaia immediately upon entering. So the question has been how long... Uh, w until the Israelis run out of these armored vehicles. Uh, and, and I think we're seeing the answer right now. There's absolutely no military uh, justification for sending these vehicles in. In fact, in 2014, uh, IDF soldiers uh, submitted to the, uh, the command leadership, to their officers, that they would not go into Gaza uh, in these vehicles. Um, and so these vehicles can carry... Uh, half a dozen, six to eight uh, people in them. And what, what you're seeing there is even if it's just a tank, even if it's just the crew that operates the vehicle, it's two. Um, you're seeing casualties in both of these operations that aren't being reported by the Israelis right now. Um, and, and this story hasn't seemed to be picked up in the Israeli uh, media, which is... I, I think is, is is surprising to me. I believed that this would be uh, when this video came out a few days ago. I thought this would be a big deal within the Israeli press. I'm not sure. Maybe we're getting our answer that they actually don't watch these videos. Maybe we can go to number nine here tomorrow because we have a, a an old favorite here. Soldiers in a window uh, in Khan Yunis. This is an IDF force with their guns poking out the window. Uh, but they didn't put their curtains up this time. No curtains, though. Usually they decorate when they... Well, you can see they're sticking the nose of their rifle out the window, which shows them to anyone who's watching. Um, and so you see the fighters here climbing up to the top floor because they can access the building right across from it. And you can see the tan warhead on the end of that. That's uh, a thermobaric, um, again, a thermobaric warhead that's used against troop positions um, that you see as a fuel air explosion. And so again, to use the language they use, appropriate weapons. We're seeing them use the weapon that is appropriate for uh, that operation, not just any weapon that they have left. So indications suggest that the Israelis are running out of gear and the Palestinians have, we haven't seen any suggestion that that's the case. Rocket fire is down um, lately, but, uh, there's lots of reasons that could explain that rocket fire being down. I don't think there's anything that explains an M113 being used in Gaza in 2024. Um, and also on this video, just to point out, um, Qassam is going back. So here we can see them again, walking up to a position right across the street, um, and using a thermobaric warhead, able to send a cameraman and a shooter, um, to eliminate that Israeli position. And then here we can see after when this rolls, 
um, they're going to go back to the same spot and take uh, an after action report or to do battle damage assessment, which is which you can see there, the hole in the wall from where the, the round hit. This is actually something Kassam is doing, this battle damage assessment. This is something the Israelis don't do. Um, even the Americans, when they strike in Iraq and say that they assassinated a leader, their forces go back the next day to the site of the attack and try to get evidence that they killed the person they intended to kill. Israel doesn't have any of that. They just massacre civilians and they don't feel the need ever to justify uh, their their attacks with, an, with a battle damage assessment, which is something that is a, a core part of uh, NATO militaries that the Israelis um, don't feel any need uh, at this point to um, to be doing, which is, I think, uh, a telling about the uh, impunity with which they, they operate, that they don't even have to pretend um, that they're killing militants or killing fighters when they're massacring uh, civilians. So maybe we can go to number 10 after this here, Tamara. Um, this is a, an operation in Kanunis, and what we're seeing here, we take out the audio here to try to keep these videos online. Um, but if you hear the audio here, you're seeing a gunfight happening uh, in the distance there, straight ahead in the middle of the camera. And you're going to watch uh, a series of bombs detonate here that blew the cameraman um, back. But you can see it's a series of, of, of explosions um, that the that the Kassam Brigade said was a barrel bomb. And this is something that uh, that fighters are able to do um, when they use unexploded ordnance, which we're seeing dropped on Gaza right now. Thirty thousand airstrikes, uh, thirty thousand targets, and we know that some of targets, by definition, have multiple airstrikes hitting them. So there's been more than thirty thousand of these, and there's a certain dud rate um, in these weapons. Um, and so the Palestinians are able to reappropriate that explosive material and set up massive bombs because you can fill the, the barrel up with as much explosives um, a, 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 as you can fit in that particular barrels. You're not limited. Uh, and you can see that against a troop position uh, there being used uh, in Kanunis. And then let's go to these field reports tomorrow because um, yesterday, so that's what a barrel bomb looks like. Um, and this is uh, Islamic Jihad. They say um, in this message yesterday, they said, in a complex engineering operation, we trapped a Zionist force in a precise ambush inside a building that was booby trapped using an F-16 missile launched by the enemy towards civilian homes. The missile did not explode. Our engineers worked to activate it and detonate it in the vicinity of the Daula Junction, south of Zaytun neighborhood in Gaza City. So that was yesterday. And then first thing this morning, uh, if we go to the next one here, the IDF acknowledged uh, in an operation Tuesday, the IDF announces the deaths of two officers killed during fighting in the Northern Gaza Strip yesterday, raising the toll to 242. Their names are, and they list them. One is a company commander, so the overall commander, and then the other one is a platoon commander. And the IDF says that seven other soldiers in the Sabar Battalion uh, were seriously wounded in the same incident. Um, and so as the result, it says they're seriously wounded as the result of an explosive device blast in Gaza City's Zaytun neighborhood. So it looks like we have confirmation from the Israelis of this Saraya al-Quds operation. Uh, they'll call it a Hamas operation, but a Saraya al-Quds operation to re-engineer, to, to reuse an unexploded bomb um, that's dropped on Gaza. And 
back after cast led um, operation, um, the uh, the Hamas government and the Qassam Brigade set about establishing an unexploded ordnance unit that went around and removed unexploded bombs from people's homes, which is a, a, a municipal service, um, but then using those bombs um, and reusing the explosive material in those bombs um, and sending them back to Israel. And so what we're seeing in this war over the last 145 days uh, is enough exploded bombs to... Uh, to propel a generation of warfare back at the Israelis. Um, and it's just, I think, uh, something that's important to note that the Palestinians are able to do this under the, a, a siege so brutal uh, that the Jordanian king has to pretend he's a special forces commander and push aid deliveries uh, from the air into the sea for children uh, to get. That's how strict the siege is. Um, but Palestinians under that, with their own hands, um, are able to manufacture a resistance uh, economy um, such that um, we can see, and we can see the results of which uh, reported uh, in these Israeli reports. So the Israelis are lying about their casualties. They've only acknowledged six casualties in the fighting in the last week. And on this videos that I showed you today, the numbers are clearly, as anyone can see, significantly higher than that. Um, but occasionally they do report, uh, and sometimes it's with these large attacks where many people's families know about it because you're talking about seven injured and nine uh, total uh, here. You're talking about many people communicating the injuries and it's harder to cover it up. Um, so we do see occasional moments where we see this acknowledgement, um, but nothing that matches um, the videos that we watch all the time. So just to wrap, um, to say all these videos for from the last week, we're still covering the ground war and the resistance uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so it's still going strong. And uh, I think you'd be surprised by that if you're only getting your English language, uh, uh, if you're only getting your news from English language media, I think you would be surprised by that. Um, so there's the resistance update, guys. Oh, thanks for that. Um, incredible. Uh, and, and yeah, I think, I think it can't be stressed enough how, um, you know, how uh, ingenious um, these engineers are, you know, making use of, um, of, of uh, things that could, you know, kill children um, if, if they were handled in a different way. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's, go ahead. Yeah, maybe we could just mention quickly the prisoner exchange uh, yeah. negotiations that are happening because Abu Bakr was talking about how everyone in Gaza already believes that there's one coming, uh, a, a ceasefire coming on Monday. Because Biden said that, yeah. But so I just want to say that that's a that's a psychological operation. When the is when the Israelis and Americans release to the media something like a, a an end date uh, that has no connection, Hamas came out immediately and said that they hadn't got this proposal. This proposal is something that the Americans and the Israelis are talking about amongst themselves. It hasn't been delivered to the resistance. It hasn't been delivered to the resistance in Gaza to make decisions like this. But Abu Bakr is aware. Uh, in Gaza, that Monday is this deadline. Um, I, I just want to say that that, that it, it, it's 
it's a cruel and brutal way to operate yeah. a psychological campaign because essentially what they're doing uh, is pretending there's a deal and that Hamas is the one or the Gazans are the one blocking the ceasefire deal. And there's no credibility to that whatsoever. Um, or, or, or it's an attempt, it. yeah. or, or John, it's an attempt to, to um, because uh, I believe that Netanyahu came out and said he had, no clear idea what Joe Biden was talking about. So, I mean, I agree with you that it's an attempt to pressure the resistance, but it's also an attempt to pressure Israel without pressuring Israel. Because as we know, and as we talked about with, with John Mearsheimer, the U.S. has the tools to pressure Israel, but it just won't use them. But I do think it is the cruelty of it for people in Gaza who are just looking for any sign of hope and one of the questions I often get from our friends in Gaza is, is there going to be a ceasefire? Is there going to, in other words, the, the people are following this to the extent that they can follow it. This is what they're following, and they want to know, is there going to be a ceasefire? So these, this, the, raising people's hopes this way, uh, only for them to be dashed, is an... Uh, uh, an element of additional psychological torture on on top of the bombing, on top of the starvation that is just it's hard it's hard for us, at least it's hard for me, to believe that the gaps that exist could be bridged by Monday, because the for that to happen would require either the resistance or Israel to really come down from uh, very well entrenched positions. The thing is, the resistance positions are pretty minimal in terms of the big picture. An end to this genocide is not too much to ask. Actually, allowing humanitarian aid in instead of simply announcing it is not too much to ask. Uh, tents. And mobile homes is not too much to ask. So there isn't a lot of concessions the resistance can give. Uh, but it's very hard to see Israel climbing down by uh, by Monday, sadly. Yeah, I mean, uh, Hamas says that they have they've been um, that they're flexible on the the two uh, the all for all being part of the all for all release. Um, that they're flexible uh, on that point. Um, and, and so they, they do, and they're flexible on that final permanent ceasefire. So the resistance has given indications that they're willing to do a first step exchange. That's a first step. That's a pause. That doesn't have to be everything negotiated right now. So the resistance has said um, that they can deal with the remaining civilians that are in uh, captivity and five of the women soldiers um, in an exchange, um, they can do that as a first step, as long as aid um, distributed all throughout the Gaza Strip in totality uh, is happening. I mean, Gaza is under siege before this war started. They got under siege, got 500 trucks. Right. And now it's a good day if they get 100 trucks into Gaza. Many days they get significantly less. And remember that Joe Biden made this announcement on Monday, oh, a ceasefire is coming. Uh, was it on Monday? Yeah, it was on so, Monday yeah. with the yeah. ice cream cone. Right after, yeah, right after he taped a show with um, Seth Meyers or something. Right. 
NBC. And just by coincidence, uh, the next day was the uh, primary in Michigan, mm-hmm. where his administration is is very afraid of Muslim and Arab American voters withholding their votes, which is in fact what happened. A, a, a very large number of people uh, voted uncommitted in the Democratic primary, where you would expect, you know, people are either going to show up at the polls in a in a primary when a president is on the ballot. They're either going to show up to show their support for the president or they're going to stay home. But a large number of people showed up to vote uncommitted, which basically means to express opposition to Biden. So, I mean, that announcement, it can't be a coincidence that it was timed just as other sort of empty announcements and gestures have been kind of a... a, a um, uh, effort to placate Arab American and Muslim voters. I just hope, and I'm speaking for myself, that people will stay away from Biden in November. This can't be tactical. And this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for anyone else here because I think it is a moral issue. Genocide is the, is is a deal breaker. You can't say, oh well, he's bad on genocide, but he's good on on something else. No, genocide is an absolute line. But anyway, that's maybe a discussion for a, a, another day. Ali, what do you what do we make of the uh, announcement that the Biden administration was um, asking Israel to sign a letter uh, by the middle of March? So in you know two two and a half weeks, um, say basically pledging to not use U.S. weapons in a manner that is against international law, you know, basically like, oh, I promise sort of thing. Yeah. Um, okay, so this was, this is uh, in the context of the memorandum that uh, the Biden administration issued a couple of weeks ago saying that all countries, they didn't name countries, but all countries that receive uh, U.S. military assistance have to, sign a certification that they are using this military assistance in compliance with U.S. law. There is a law in the United States called the Leahy Law, named after Senator, uh, I forget his first name now, I know I know it, Patrick, is it Patrick Leahy? Patrick Leahy. Yeah, of Vermont, uh, which says that uh, it is illegal for the United States to transfer military equipment to the units of foreign countries that uh, commit human rights abuses. I mean, of course, that means that in a, in, a, in a world that actually followed this law, Israel wouldn't get a single bullet from the United States. But of course, we know that's not the case. Now, the law allows the State Department to initiate an investigation as to whether any particular country or unit within that country is in compliance with U.S. law. That, I don't believe the law really defines what triggers an investigation or what that investigation could look like. But I assume, this is me just kind of giving my analysis, if Israel signs this certification, the Biden administration will be able to say, we 
examined Israel's actions under the Lehi law, and Israel has certified that it's complying. Right. So in other words, rather than a, this being a form of pressure on Israel, which is what we're supposed to believe it is, it is another way to get Israel off the hook and the administration off the hook to say, we did our, uh, our due diligence uh, and we have this certification from Israel that they're complying with U.S. law in terms of the way this military assistance is used. So it's another ruse, and it is uh, uh, it shows how unserious they are about protecting Palestinian civilians because, as we've said all along, the easy way is to, uh, to tell Israel, pick up the phone, say, enough, stop this, we're cutting off the weapons, we're cutting off the money. Instead, what do we have? The, the Pentagon continues to send the bombs around the clock. And Joe Biden is pushing as hard as he can for Congress to send, what is it, another $14 billion to Israel to sustain this war. And, of course, the United States continues to veto UN Security Council resolutions calling for a ceasefire. So this move, Nora, uh, is just more... PR by the Biden administration to try to hide their uh, direct complicity in this genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else we want to discuss before we wrap? Um, I think we have a note about next week's program in terms yeah. of scheduling. Do you want to mention that? Yeah. So next week, um, we are not going to have a live stream Wednesday, but we will uh, have one Thursday. So we'll send out more information about that um, closer to that date. Um, but yeah. How and, can people find out this important information? Well, is there a way? You ask, mm -hmm. Yes, there is. <laughs> um, if you go to electronicintifada.net, and you click on uh, our get, I think it's get updates, um, sign up for our email list. You'll get uh, emails just from us, not from anyone else. We won't give your email address away, um, but we will let you know about our upcoming live streams, about other uh, standalone podcast episodes, which we're accumulating some of uh, and we'll be releasing very shortly. Um, and uh, yeah, and and kind of you know we, we do uh, daily summaries of all of the the uh, pieces that we've published over the day. Uh, so there it is. You click on that get updates link up at the top left. Um, and you can also go to our YouTube page and subscribe, and it'll alert you uh, when we have uh, scheduled another live stream. And um, yeah, Asa. No, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just before we get to some comments before we close, and it's been very active today. I can yeah. see that. And just thank you for everyone. I, I sort of have one eye on people's comments. I, I don't see them all, but I see a lot. But just how amazing it was. I just want to say how amazing it was to have Abu Bakr Abed on. That was like unplanned. It just worked out perfectly. And just to remember all of our writers and contributors and friends in Gaza, even though we're not able to get them on the live stream very often as we were at the beginning of this genocide when it was still easier to get connections, remember that they are, you know, I'm so glad we could put 
Abu Bakr's face and voice uh, and thoughts and feelings to his articles that we're still publishing. And that's true of, uh, I don't know if we can show the front page again, uh, Tamara, for those who are just coming to this uh, live stream for the first time, that our publication, The Electronic Intifada, we are publishing articles and analysis and reportage by um, our colleagues in Gaza, like Abu Bakr, uh, and I, uh, is his article still on the front page? Uh, it, it, yeah, there it is. It's still there on the front page, but also on the front page, we have articles today. Let's have a look uh, from just, yeah, go, go up a little, Tamara, so I can see, um, from Bashair Muammar, who is in Gaza, and uh, from Noor Khalil Abu Shamala, who's in Gaza, and from um, uh, Sahar Qishta, uh, who's also in Gaza. So you're not getting all these articles from writers in Gaza from the New York Times. Uh, you're getting garbage and lies from the New York Times. But you are getting this from the Electronic Interval, and we're very proud of that. I feel like that's one of the most important things we do. And uh, so please continue to read and share uh, all of this incredible work by our friends and colleagues in Gaza and by the many other writers who contribute as well from all over the world. Yeah. And we also, um, uh, people are starting to send over fan art, which is like so sweet and amazing. And I, I just wanted to give a shout out to uh, Ibrahim Abusita who sent us this uh, exquisite illustration of a, a still from one of our live streams. I love it. I love it. It's so yeah. good. It's so good. So thank you, Ibrahim. And yes, uh, send fan art. We love it. We will We will show it. We will display it proudly at the EI offices. And um, yeah, thank you. Um, Asa, let's, uh, let's hear from, from the audience a little bit. Okay. Uh, well, um, a very lively chat today. Um, people were very pleased um, to hear from Abu um, Abu Bakr earlier. That was uh, Abu Bakr Abed, one of our contributors, who, as Ali was saying not long ago, joined us at the top of the show. As always, you can go back to YouTube and you can review the start of the stream if you missed it. And we will be, as always, we will be cutting the segments up into separate YouTube videos. So thank you to all of the viewers who wrote in to send uh, some support for Abu Bakr Abed. Um, Odd Socks said, Abu Bakr, you're incredible. We hope you carry on with your education very, very soon and have chocolate and biscuits and meat and fish. I think we can all um, second that. Um, Katie White's as well says, um, our hearts break for you. You will achieve your dreams. Don't give up. We love you. Thank you, Katie. Um, let me see. Uh, there was a very lively debate in the comments, uh, during the, the John Mearsheimer segment, um, I have to say. So that was great to see. Um, Tan Weir, a regular viewer says, uh, excellent live stream. 
John Mearsheimer is brilliant. Eleanor's questions are illuminating for the relevant themes of our times. Um, so yeah, they, like I said, there was a lively debate. Um, so we had um, people disagreeing with John Mearsheimer and people agreeing with John Mearsheimer. Um, Roger Waters, um, this the Roger Waters, uh, regular viewer, <laughs> says, um, I love John Mearsheimer, but I believe he's wrong about the Israeli lobby. It's a dying duck and their time is over um thank you roger but um leticia cortez said i fully agree i fully agree with professor mirschleimer in his analysis of why israel holds so much power over u.s politicians and the lobby so there you go that's my bbc both sides bit for you there <laughs> well done <laughs> <laughs> um we had lots of other comments let me see um I like this one, show and tell with Commander John, um, <laughs> and uh, the uh, the usual uh, I, the usual um, analyze uh, Commander John. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, yeah, and lots of uh, support for EI in general. People saying to donate to EI as well, um, and we had this very poignant comment as well about Aaron Bushnell, um, a quote from the Gospel of John, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so, yeah, I, I found that very, a very poignant comment during the section on uh, Aaron Bushnell, who we covered in Nora's uh, section about the news. So thank Written you for that. Written exquisitely by Tamara Nassar. Yeah. 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 Um, and one final comment um if we we get supporters from all over the world writing in to say where they're from so i'm going to use this i'm learning welsh you know i'm uh, people may know i'm from south wales so i'm actually learning welsh at the moment and um this is uh kavachian or gamri palestinareth which is um greetings from wales free palestine and it's it's the correct free pa it's like freedom for Palestine, not yeah the other Palestine, the other uh, like as in you know free. That's Amdim. So yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. We'll have, to, we'll have to have you do a segment uh, yeah. in in, uh, in in Welsh one day. But we we really appreciate yeah. that, and it is wonderful to see how many people are uh, do tune in and do engage from all over the world and that's a reminder that we are the majority the whole world is utterly horrified by this genocide and we have to remember we have power in that so as we say often just as a reminder keep everyone who's in gaza in your hearts and minds and keep going out in every forum that you can uh to to say stop the genocide and stop the complicity uh, and that's again the message that we're hearing from uh, from from our friends all the time. So to hear to hear that from uh, every corner of the world uh, is is really wonderful. Yeah, we always get comments every week. People write usually at the beginning of the stream. People write in um, from where they're from, and it is it's really encouraging to see people from all over the world. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. And again, uh, go to electronicintifada.net. You can subscribe to our email list, read our features, especially those from Gaza. Um, and uh, yeah, and and we'll see you next time. We'll we'll uh, we'll let you know. Uh, again, 
next week we won't be live Wednesday, but we will be live Thursday. Um, but we will send out reminders as usual. Thank you, everyone. John, Asa, Ali, Tamara, of course, behind the scenes, our ex excellent and brilliant and talented producer, director. Um, thank you to everyone at, at uh, Electronic Intifada, and we'll see you soon. Thanks.